Last week, we listened as Jesus asked his disciples two important questions. First, Jesus said, who do men say that I, that I, the Son of Man, am? And in that question, he sort of told them who he was. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the disciples responded. They said, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked the disciples a very serious and very important question. It was a more personal question. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? You see, it doesn't really matter who everybody else says Jesus is. It matters who do you say that he is. Who is he to you? Peter pipes up and responds. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What a great answer. What a fantastic answer. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. And Jesus went on to tell Peter, hey, Pete, you've only come to this conclusion because God in heaven has revealed it to you. You didn't, don't think you came to it on your own. You're not that smart. The Lord's revealed this to you, Peter. That's the only way that you've come to this conclusion. And he went on to say, Jesus, he being Jesus, went on to say, and, and he based it on that very statement that Peter made, I am the Christ, the son of the living God, that Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. Who's going to do the building? Jesus is going to do the building. Whose church is it? It's his church. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a promise there. His, his work, his church, will be victorious. Praise the Lord for that, huh? And from here, Jesus explained to the apostles that they're part of the foundation, just like we're part of the building. We're, we're all part of the, they were the foundation. They were the first. They were the early church. Now we're all part of that building as well. We're built on the church. So this week, we're going to pick up in chapter 16, verse 21. Uh, follow along with me. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. Peter, what time is he talking about? He says, from what time? From the time where Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. From the time where Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. From the time that Jesus began to reveal, from that time, he began to reveal more and more about his mission, about his true mission, why he was here on earth. He was rather specific with them. He said, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things by the religious leaders. I'm going to be killed. But don't worry, I'm going to raise again on the third day. I'm sure that this came as quite a shock to the disciples. I can imagine them thinking... In my mind, this is what would, I think they would be thinking, okay, we got the Messiah part. We believe that. We've seen the miracles. We've seen the water calmed. We've seen the demons cast out. We've got the power part. We understand that you're powerful. You're almighty. We got it. But this death thing, this dying thing, this is not what happens to a Messiah. This is not what happens to a Savior. A Savior saves. You can't save if you're dead. How can you save us if you're not around? You're supposed to overcome, not be overcome by death. I don't think the resurrection part even registered with them. I don't think they got past the suffering death part. They never even heard the end of the sentence, I don't believe. 
I don't think they ever got that far. I think, wait, 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 wait. Our plan is the Messiah is going to conquer Rome for us. You're going to put us back on the map. We're going to be our own country. God, we're Just like the old days, we're, we're going to serve God. Walls of Jericho are going to fall down again. Not literally, but some other. We're going to have all these amazing things happening. That's what's supposed to happen. You see, I don't think they ever heard the resurrection part. I don't even think it ever, if they had heard the resurrection part, if they understood it, they would have never forsaken him when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if they did know the resurrection part, wouldn't they have been standing outside that tomb waiting? They didn't have business. No, he told us he's coming back. We're not leaving. But where were they? They were afraid. They were scattered. They were gone all over the place. They would have stood by that tomb anxiously waiting for him to come out if they heard that part. But remember, it was after Jesus rose from the dead that an angel came and reminded them. Luke 24, 6 tells us the angel said, hey, he's not here. He's risen. He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Then it tells us they remembered his words. They remembered it at that time. The Holy Spirit brought, brought it back to them when they needed it. This is kind of cool. He's not speaking in parables. He's t- he couldn't get any plainer with what he's telling them. I'm going to go. The problem is they can't accept what he's telling them. They don't like it. Look how Peter said. Look what Peter says. Peter says there in verse 22, Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God but the things of man. Well, notice Peter took him aside. At least he didn't do it publicly, right? But can I tell you, it's never a good idea to rebuke Jesus. Yeah. It's probably not a good idea to tell God he's doing something wrong. He's messing up. It's not a good thing. When Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, he's saying boldly and confidently, Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. You're making a mistake here. You, you, this is not possible. It cannot happen to you. Talk about overstepping your boundaries, huh? <laughs> He's way over. But you know what? I can understand how it happened. I, I can relate to Peter. We, we like to be pretty hard on Peter. Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth. We always say that. You know, we always, we can make, we can poke fun a little bit at Peter. But after all, didn't the Lord just speak mightily through Peter? Wasn't it through Peter? Jesus told him, he, Jesus himself said, you are blessed because the Lord has revealed this to you. Peter, you're blessed. Peter, you're blessed. Can you imagine the Lord telling you you're blessed face to face? Man, you're right. I'm blessed. I'm special. I'm blessed. Jesus said I'm blessed. Peter's probably thinking, hey, I'm blessed. He told me I'm blessed. Now let me set him straight on this. Let me help him out with this. I'd better go tell Jesus how things are going to go. Let me, let me get him right because this is, not, this is not the way it's supposed to happen. But here's the problem with Peter in this situation. Peter is far too confident in his ability to hear from God. He's far too confident in his own ability to hear from God. Has there ever been a time in your life where you thought you heard from God and then it turned out you didn't hear from God? Have you ever had that situation? I've had it in my life where I thought God showed me something specific. I thought I had confirmation in his word. It turns out that's not what he said at all. You see, Peter thinks that he's doing the right thing. There's no doubt in my mind that Peter believes he's, he's doing, he's setting, he's setting the Lord straight. But I've been there. I understand that. When Rebecca was pregnant with our first son, Jacob, it was, I guess, almost, he's going to be 18 next week, so it's 18 and a half years ago, probably. 
I felt the Lord had revealed to me that we were having twins. I was positive of it. I was confident. I had scripture to back it up. I was reading the Bible and I came across a scripture. I, I, I was sure of it. I made the mistake of telling people about it. I did. Hey, the Lord showed me we're having twins. That's fantastic. People said, that's great. The Lord showed you that. I told our friends about it. I shared it publicly. After all, the Lord said, I was confident. This is what the Lord said. When we went to that doctor's appointment, I was confident there would be two heartbeats. There would be two babies on that, what do they call them, sonograms? Or echo, whatever they call them. The EK, no, I don't know what they call them. The ultrasound, that's the word I'm looking for. Ultrasound. I was confident there would be two babies on that ultrasound. I was waiting for them to tell us that. Hey, you're, you're, do, you know, do you know you're having twins? You know what? There wasn't two babies in there. There was only one. Only one. It rocked my faith a little bit. I mean, I thought I'd heard from God. I thought, wait a minute, the Lord spoke to me. How could, it, how could I be so sure I heard from God, but then it's not happening? So I, you know what I did? I tried to explain it away. Well, maybe there were two. Maybe there were two, and, and there's only one alive right now, so maybe the Lord took one of them, and then I, I had to realize that's not, what the Lord, that's not what I thought the Lord said. I began twisting the story a little bit to try to make it fit into what I thought the Lord said, and that wasn't what the Lord had said at all. There was only one child in there, and I began to try to explain it away, and that didn't, I realized that wasn't right. We weren't having twins, and I began to consider and think about it, and truth be told, like Peter, I was too confident in my ability to hear from God. I wasn't mature enough. I thought I heard from him, but I hadn't heard from him. I, I, I couldn't understand it. I thought because I'd read a verse in the Bible and it seemed to confirm what I wanted in my life that it must be God telling me that. You ever been there? You ever done something similar? It's gotta be God telling me. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it might not be. Today, when the Lord tells me something, when the Lord reveals something to me, I don't run out and tell anyone every, every I don't run out and tell everyone any, anymore. Why? Because I want to make sure it's really from him. I want to make sure it's the Lord telling me it's from him. As a matter of fact, this verse helped me, this, this verse, this problem helped me figure out really can I understand the voice of the Lord? You see, it's quite possible that you think you're hearing from the Lord and, and you might not be. But what I found that when the Lord speaks, when the Lord wants you to know something, he's going to confirm it to you. He's going to continue to show it to you. It'll stand the test of time. It doesn't mean that it will happen right away. Please don't misunderstand. But it'll begin. You'll start to see other fruits of it. You'll start to see other evidence over time. And it might not be for a year or for 10 years or for 15 years. But I've learned that when the Lord puts something on my heart, I need to keep it between him and I. I'm not saying don't ever tell anybody, but what I'm saying is make sure the Lord wants you to tell somebody. Make sure it's not supposed to be between you and him. There are many things the Lord's given me small glimpses about my future in my life. I'm not going to tell anyone about it. I, be, I, it to, I want him to do it. You see, because here's what happens. Sometimes the Lord gives us a glimpse of something, and we run off and try to make it happen in our own strength. And he goes, I wasn't ready for that. You're, you're, you're doing it in your own strength. You're not waiting for me. You're not letting me do it. I've given you a glimpse of what's to come, but you're trying to make it happen without me. But when we sit back and we wait, and we watch the pieces come together, we watch his hand moving things, circumstances in place, we watch one thing after another confirm what we believe that he's told us. You know what it does? It builds your faith. You're like, wow, Lord, you're really doing it. And it might take months or years, 
But let him work. Give him the time. Let time, let it, te- let it stand the test of time. Peter figures, he hears what Jesus says. He figures, I got this. I just got to tell him, hey, that's not what God has planned. Let me go straighten him out on it. Oh, let me tell him what, what happens. And Jesus replies, what does he tell him? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You're offensive to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Now think about this. Peter went from Simon, which some suggest means shifty sand, to Peter, which means little rock. Now, now he's called Satan. His name went to Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Four verses it took him to go this far. From Simon to Peter to Satan. He went from being a messenger of God, carrying the word of God, to being a messenger for Satan. Carrying the word of Satan. This is, this is frightening. He didn't intend on becoming a messenger of Satan. I don't think for one moment he wanted to. He didn't intend on being an offense to Jesus. But just like earlier, Peter didn't know that he spoke for God until Jesus pointed it out. Now Satan is speaking through him. That's kind of scary to me. What happened? How could that possibly happen in somebody's life? How could, I, how could somebody, I mean, this is Jesus saying, hey, Satan, get behind me. You're offensive to me. And he tells him why. He tells him what happened. And it reminded me of something. Just because God uses you profoundly and speaks to you directly, it doesn't mean you can't slip up or find yourself being manipulated by Satan himself. It's often much easier to be a tool of God or a mouthpiece for Satan than we want to believe. This is why I believe James' advice is so, so valuable. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Sometimes we open our mouths before we pray. Sometimes we open our mouths before we digest what we're about to say. Sometimes even up here I say things I wish I wouldn't have said. Sometimes we open our mouths and it's like, I need to think about that first. I don't need to respond immediately all the time. Sometimes it's much better to say, you know what, I'm going to get back to you on that. Let me pray about that and see what, see, see what the Lord shows me. And you don't, you don't have to be all spiritual if it's, not a, if it's not another believer. If it's somebody at work, you just say, hey, listen, let me get back to you on that. Okay, can you help out with this on Saturday? You know, I don't know. Let me get back to you on that. Maybe the Lord wants you to do something else on Saturday. You see, go see the well, Lord. What do you What do you want me to do? That's why James's advice is so valuable. See, as Christians, we still think human thoughts, and we're still influenced by our human and sinful perspective, aren't we? It's still within us. It's not always easy to differentiate between God's thoughts and my thoughts, and even worse, Satan's thoughts. Satan is the father of lies, and if you have to throw him out of your head more than once today, probably. It's the way that he works. And sometimes we can get so confused on who's telling us something. It's possible for Satan to be saying something, you think it's God, and getting all wrapped up on something, and it's not God at all. We're going to find out to ask the question, does it line up with God's word? Is it, what's God, is it what God's word says? And there's no magical formula for knowing when it's God speaking or, or, or another voice inside of you. you, you there's no magical way. There's no, there's no test that I can give you. But it takes time. It takes spiritual maturity. And as you expose your mind to the word of God, as you grow, you'll be able to discern the difference. It takes humbling our hearts to repentance. It takes truly wanting to know God's will saturating our minds with scripture and allowing the spirit to challenge every single assumption that you have in your own life will you let him challenge everything that you believe in your own life every assumption you have will you let him filter it jesus was telling peter hey peter your place is behind me not in front of me 
I'm the one leading. You're supposed to be following, Peter. You need to follow me in the way that I choose, not lead me in the way that you think I should go. You see, that was Peter's mistake. He was trying to lead the Lord into the way that he thought a Messiah should act. And there's no way that a Messiah would do this. And Jesus says, Peter, get behind me. You can't lead from the front of the line. You're, you're, you're supposed to be a follower. And then brings up the question, how does that happen? What happens? How, Peter, how did you go from having the spiritual insight about who Jesus is to all of a sudden now, now you're in front of Jesus and, you, and, he, and he's calling you Satan and telling you to get behind him? He tells you exactly how it happened right there. How was Satan able to speak through Peter? Right there in verse, the end of verse 23. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter allowed his mind to reside on the things of men and not on the things of God. He had his own plans, his own purpose. And guess who was standing by to take advantage of it? Peter is a perfect example of how a sincere heart, coupled with man's way of thinking, can often lead to disaster. That's what happened. Peter's heart was sincere, but he wasn't into biblical thinking, into God's word. He had God standing before him, and he was contradicting the word of God as was coming out of the mouth of Christ. No, no, that's wrong. Let me set you straight. Far be it from you, Lord. That will not happen to you. Let me tell you how it should be done. What was Peter's mistake? He was thinking like a man. Men, we don't want to suffer. And men, women, we don't want to suffer in death. There's no plan for that. That's not, there's nothing, we don't want that. He didn't have God's mind in the matter. He didn't say, what did God say? What do the scriptures say? What are the things that, is what I'm saying, does it line up with God's word? Where do we find the mind of God? In the word of God. Which is why it's so important that we study and teach the way that we do. Because where do you find the mind of God? Right in the word of God. Now for us, it's right here, 66 books. For Peter, it was standing in front of him. Right in front of him. As it was being said, we're reading it now as the word of God. He was listening to it. He didn't read, have to read it. Jesus was standing right in front of him. He, had, he did not have God's mind in the matter. He had man's mind in the matter. Peter, what should he have considered? What if he'd have considered the Old Testament prophecies? What does the Bible say about the suffering of the Messiah? If he'd have remembered Isaiah 53, he would have remembered this. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. A few verses later, he would remember, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He didn't remember those prophecies about the Messiah. Because in Peter's mind, the Messiah was going to be a savior, but he was going to be a physical savior, not a spiritual savior. He wasn't interested. He was being deceived at the moment. Peter's expectations for the Messiah did not line up with what God's word said about the Messiah. That's his mistake. Sometimes I think the same thing can happen to us. It's very, it's very easy to happen to us. The Lord calls us to do something. We step out with certain expectations. When it doesn't happen like we expect, what do we do? We quit. God wasn't there for me. God didn't do it. It didn't happen. Never realizing that God wanted to do something greater. He just had to get you to the end of your expectations first. Never realizing that God says, no, I wanted you to step out. I, I, I don't want you. I, right now you're working in your strength. If you'll just stop working, in your, the sooner you'll stop working in your strength, I'll start, I'll help out. And it'll go much greater, much bigger, much, it'll go much better than you ever imagined. 
I wonder how many ministries people quit because God didn't do what they thought that he should do. They didn't, he didn't respond the way they thought he would respond. In a sense, they weren't following God, they were leading God. Hmm. Back to my original statement, it's probably not a good idea to rebuke the Lord. Chances are he knows what he's doing. You see, Peter, with his mind on the things of men, he saw the Messiah as an embodiment of power and strength instead of a suffering servant. He didn't realize it at the time. Peter couldn't handle a suffering Messiah because it didn't line up with his expectations. Can I encourage you that if you are going to follow the Lord, get rid of your expectations. Let the Lord do what the Lord's going to do. And just be willing to follow in every area of your life. In every single aspect, God's going to do what God's going to do. And you can hang on the promises that God is faithful. You can do it. He's going to do it. Because it's probably not a good idea to rebuke the Lord. In verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, there's an interesting thing here. Many people will agree with Peter. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he's the Son of God. But they stop right there. It becomes nothing more than an agreement, a statement. They never, as Jesus says, come after me. They never come after him. Jesus said, if anyone, that's us, by the way, that's you and me, if anyone desires to come after me, means if you genuinely want to follow Jesus, you must do these three things. He lists them for you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Three characteristics of true discipleship right there for you. Plain as day, three characteristics. The first one is the requirement of self-denial. You've got to deny yourself. This means, in that word, it means this, to completely disown, to utterly separate oneself from someone. It's the same word used to describe Peter's denial of him while he was being questioned by the high priest. He's completely separating. I don't know that person anymore. I don't know that man. One commentator said a believer is to utterly disown himself, to refuse to acknowledge the self of the old man or the old life. Perhaps we could paraphrase Jesus' words this way. Let him refuse any association or companionship with his old self. His old self. Paul would say, reckon your old man dead. The self that Jesus is referring to, what's he talking about there? He's talking about your personal identity as a distinct individual. He's talking about you. To deny yourself is to come underneath of the lordship of Jesus Christ. You are coming underneath of him. You're recognizing you are a sinner saved by grace, and now you get a whole new identity. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. So in my case, I'm no longer Rob the police officer who has a hobby of fishing. I'm Rob Mahovich who is a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And I'll do whatever he calls me to do. If he calls me to work as a police officer, I'll continue working as a police officer. If he calls me to start a church in Cumberland, I'll start a church in Cumberland. If I get to enjoy the hobby of fishing, great. The Lord's blessed me with that that day. You see, it's a different perspective. It's who I am. I am no longer the one in charge. He is the one in charge. I'm willing to say all of my, when, when, I, when I became a pastor, I had to be willing to say goodbye to all of my plans for life. And I'm a planner, by the way. All of my plans for my life that I had laid out were gone. When we bought our house in Florida that we moved from, that was supposed to be the house that I retired in. That was it. We weren't moving. We were going to live there the rest of our life. That was my plan. When I said to the Lord, I will do anything you want me to do, including be a pastor, I had no idea that I was going to have to move. But I had to be willing to. Because I've given up my life. I'm denying what I thought was a perfect life. Because we always plan our life out perfectly, right? I've always got the steps laid out. This is going to be perfect for me. I have, my, I have my career plan path. I have my kid plan. I have my family plan. We had it all planned out just the way I wanted to. But God said, no, I want you to do this. And I was forced with a decision. Do I want to deny myself and my plans and come underneath of him? Or do I want to say no to his plans? The second requirement of discipleship there, he says, take up your cross. Take up your cross. What does that mean? Let me first tell you what it does not mean to take up your cross. You've probably heard and read a lot of things. To take up your cross is not some mystical level of selflessness. It's not the denying of yourself for some deeper, deeper spiritual life. It's not just that. It's not that. It's not, the, it's not the common trials and hardships that you experience in life. That's not taking up your cross. A cross is not having an unsaved husband. It's not having a nagging wife or a crazy mother-in-law. Nor is it having a handicapped or being sick or suffering from an incurable disease. That's not what he's talking about there. Those are difficulties in life, but that's not what he's talking about. The cross is a symbol of death. That's what it is. It's a symbol of death. Physical death, not spiritual death. Back in that day, it was an instrument of brutality and a vivid reality of suffering. That's what it was. In that day, when Jesus said, take up your cross, they immediately pictured a poor condemned soul walking along the road, carrying the instrument of his execution on his own back. He was carrying his cross. There was no turning back. There was no opting out. His direction was set. His life was going in the same direction, and it was going to end when he got there. There was no deviation from the path. You did what was laid before you. To take up your cross, to take up your cross is not some feeling. It's not some difficulty that we have. A man who took up his cross began his death march carrying the very beam on which he would hang. That's how it worked. They would strap that cross beam to your back. You would carry it to where you were going to die. And you would walk through the entire town. For a disciple of Christ to take up his cross. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? It means you're willing to start on a death march. A march that will start you now and it'll lead in death. You'll be willing in his service to suffer indignities, pain, and even death if necessary. Take up your cross means you're willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. You're willing to endure anything for him. He's the one in charge, you're not. I'll do it, Lord. But you might die. It's okay. You might have shame. It's okay. You might be embarrassed. It's okay. You might suffer rejection from your family. It's okay. There might be persecution or even martyrdom. 
You might be martyred for your faith. It's okay. Mama, I know, I know where this is going to end. I'm starting it now. I know where it's going to end. I'm going to pick up that cross and I'm going to faithfully walk through whatever I have to until I get to that point. Nothing can separate us from our Savior. There's no turning back. There's no, well, I, 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 I don't think I want to do this any longer. No, I can't do this. No, it's, it's me realizing he is God. He is the one that loves me. He has forgiven me for my sins. And me saying, I am placing myself under you. I am fully trusting in your ability to care for me and prepare me for eternity. And whatever I go through on this earth in this life, I know you've got my best in mind. I know, it's for, I, know, I know you're with me. I know that you'll strengthen me in weaknesses. I'll give you glory through it all. I'm willing to take that step from now until the day I see you face to face. The third element Jesus gave of discipleship is what? To follow. You have to be a follower. What is this? This is obedience. First you deny yourself, then you take up your cross, and then you can walk in obedience to him. True discipleship is submission to the lordship of Christ. And it becomes a pattern for your life. It's not a one-time thing. It doesn't mean you'll get it perfect every time, but, but you're, it, it's, this is the pattern. This is the way I'm living my life. When the Lord calls and the Lord says, the Lord speaks, I confirm it, I go. I do it. I'm willing to take that step. As Christians, we're called to be the followers, not the leaders. Followers, not leaders. Did you ever play follow the leader when you were a kid? You get a few kids in a line, and the kid up front gets to raise his arm, and everyone has to do what? Raise their arm. Everyone jumps up. They jump up. They jump up and down. Everyone has to jump up and down. What happens in that game very quickly? Everybody wants to be the leader, don't they? They always fall apart because everybody wants to run to the front, and you have a whole bunch of chiefs and no Indians. Same thing happens in our spiritual life. Everybody wants to be the leader. What we need is followers. He says, "True disciples, they're going to follow me. They're going to let me do the leading. They're going to let me handle this. He's going to lead." As Christians, we're the followers, not the leaders. True discipleship is this submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's the pattern in our life that we do. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, we covered it several weeks ago. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. You see, it's possible for someone to sit in church week in and week out, hear the Bible study, but, and, and yep, I, I, I agree that he's the Son of God and he's the Messiah, but I'm not following. I haven't picked up my cross. I haven't made the commitment to the end of my life. I haven't, I haven't be willing to go through whatever I have to go through, whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, whatever blessing as well. There might be, there's blessings as well. It's not all, the Christian life is not all hardship. A lot of times it can be a, it can be a blessing as well. On Sunday, in 1 Peter, we read, To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God and the Father, in sanctification of the Holy Spirit, for obedience. Obedience is key. For obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. To come after Jesus. To come after him. It does not mean that you raise your hand while nobody's looking and pray a prayer quietly. It does not mean you fill out a card. It does not mean you repeat a prayer after the pastor. These things might be the beginning. They might be the first step. Oh, but don't misunderstand. That's only step one. That's only the beginning of a Christian life. 
It's not now you can go do whatever you want. They might be the first step. They might be the beginning of your commitment, but they are not the completion of it. It is a life that we complete the day that we see him face to face. Fortunately, his grace abounds. He understands we'll make mistakes. And the amazing thing about the Lord is he knows our true heart. You see, we can fool everybody else around us, but he knows your true heart. You see, we can read these things and go, man, I want to be more like that. He knows that. He knows, he knows where you stand with this. To come to Christ is to be committed to Christ. To come to Christ is to come to the end of yourself, to be fed up with your sin and desire his righteousness. I want what he has. I'm not just protecting myself from what someone's told me hell might look like. I want it so bad that I'm willing to give up anything, including my old life, to get it. Anything. You'll make any sacrifice for the one who sacrificed for you, for the one who loves you. I'll do anything. I want the righteousness of Christ so bad, I'll change. I'll do whatever I need to do to get it. I'm committed to him. You see, we don't understand what commitment means. How do you think commitment works out in our culture? Marriage statistic-wise, not so good. Sometimes it seems that in our culture, the only thing we're committed to is the thing that benefits us the most at the present time. But the moment things get hard, the moment things get difficult, oh, we'll change our commitment. There's a new opportunity that came along. There's a new thing, a new chance, a new whatever. We've got to get something new to be get committed to. Let me say this very, don't misunderstand me when I say this. While I completely degree, disagree with everything about the Muslim terrorism, I completely disagree with everything they're doing. In some weird way, I admire their commitment to something that's a lie. They'll walk to their death for a lie. We have the truth. And many of us waver. They're committed to a lie. As Christians, we're committed to the truth. It's proven in our life forever. We should have no problem giving up those things in our life that are keeping us from a closer relationship to him. We should be dying to do it, literally. Can't wait to give it up. I can't wait to change the way I'm thinking. But so often the word of God convicts us and we go, ah, yeah, you were talking to me today. The Lord was really speaking to me. So often I'm going to say it to all of you so I don't offend any one of you. What are you doing about it? Do you change, does, it, does it hit your heart and go, man, I've got to do something. Yeah, I got to, next week I'll start on that. Or does it bring you to a place of, Lord, forgive me. Your word spoke to me. I, I need, I, I, you've been convicting me on this thing over and over and over again. I'm not, I'm not responding. I want your righteousness. He continues there, verse 25. He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The words life and soul, synonymous there. Same Greek word. You can replace them if you want. Jesus is contrasting life on this earth versus eternal life. Let's not overcomplicate it. The Lord is saying that whoever lives, whoever's life is focused only to save his earthly physical life, his ease, his life of comfort, his acceptance by the world, will lose his opportunity for eternal life. Think about that. But whoever's willing to give up his earthly life, whoever's willing to pick up his cross, give up the worldly life, and willing to suffer and die, if necessary... For Christ's sake, they will find eternal life. Every person has a choice. You can go for it now and lose it forever, or you can forsake it now and gain it forever. 
The true disciple of Christ is willing to pay, if necessary, whatever price that faithfulness to the Lord requires. Let me say it again. A true disciple, a true follower of Christ is willing to pay whatever it costs, if he asks you to, whatever true faithfulness looks like, whatever obedience looks like. I read a story of a slave who lived on a plantation in the South. This particular man was always singing, always happy. No matter what happened to him, his joy was always abounding. And one day his master asked him, he said, what have you got that makes you so happy? Why are you always walking around so happy? The slave replied, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. He's forgiven my sin and put a song in my heart. And the master said, how do I get what you have? I want it. How do I get it? And the slave said, you go, you put on your best Sunday suit, and you come down here and you work in the mud with us, and then you can have it. The owner said, I would never do that. He walked away indignant. A few weeks later, the master asked the same question. and He was given the same answer. A few weeks after that, he came to him a third time. He said, look, be straight with me. Be honest with me. What do I have to do to get what you have? He says, just what I've told you all the other times. I already told you, same time. The answer's not going to change. And out of desperation, the owner said, all right, I'll do it. And the slave responded, now you don't have to do it. You only had to be willing to do it. You only had to be willing. The disciple of Christ must be willing to give up everything for the Lord. You see, he's not telling us that we have to give up everything. He's not saying that you have to live a poor and destitute life for the rest of your life. He says, are you willing to give up everything? We have to be willing to give up what he has given us. Is it yours? Are you focusing your life on holding on to everything you have? Or you realize it's all his? Everything. Your marriage, your relationship, your, your singleness, whatever it is. Everything belongs to him. I'm his. You see, the disciple of Christ is not required to be a martyr, only willing to, if the Lord requires it of him. In, G, in verse 26, Jesus reinforces his previous statement with, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, everything, and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, if somebody possessed the whole world, if you could have the whole world, you could own it all. Everything. It would all be yours. Every bit, every piece, every land. It would all be yours if you owned everything. What lasting benefit would there be? If you gained it all, but you forfeited your soul, you forfeited your eternal life, you'd be a walking dead man who temporarily owns everything. What good would it be? But you'd be facing an eternity in hell rather than in heaven. Let me put it to you another way. There's nothing in this world. There's no sin no stuff, nothing you can buy, no lifestyle, no political position, nothing in this world worth gaining at the expense of your salvation. There's nothing in this world, but yet that's what we battle with, isn't it? Isn't it the world that's always pulling us away? Isn't it the world that's trying to suck us in? Isn't it advertising that's trying to tell us what we need? It's, that's the battle, that's the struggle. You see, I, the way that we can overcome that struggle is realize what's on the other side. 
realize there's nothing I can get that's going to matter in eternity. It doesn't matter. It's all, all of the worldly stuff, it's just stuff. It means nothing. To gain every possession possible in the world and be without Christ is to be bankrupt forever. Yet somehow, some way, Satan always convinces us that we need a little bit more, that we don't have enough. That somebody else has, why, why do they have more than we do? How come they're being blessed and I'm not being blessed? We can always get this thing that, that, that he always wants to convince us there's something wrong with us. But if we would abandon everything in this world for the sake of Christ, we would be rich forever. Think about the difference. So I ask the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? Are you a follower of Christ? Have you taken up your cross? Have you denied yourself? Are, are these the things that you, you can look at and go, yeah, I'm, I'm doing those things. And please don't misunderstand and think I have to be poor and broken or, or something to do that. I, you can do that and, and continue. Things in your life may not change dramatically, but it's the heart that changes. I'm willing to do these things. I'm willing to give it all up for him. Are you there? You see, tonight we're going to close with a time of prayer. Just a couple of minutes. Like we haven't done that in a while. And I just want to encourage you. If you've got to get, I don't necessarily like these words, but I'm going to use them. If you've got to get right with the Lord, if your focus is off, if you don't know the Lord, if you've been, you know, maybe agreeing in the Lord, but you're not, you're not, I'm not willing to give up my life for the Lord. I'm not willing to give up what I have. If the Lord came to you right now and you were sure it was him and said, I want you to move, pack up your life and move to another city, would you go? If you were sure it was him, not saying that you're doubting, would you be willing to pack up and move? If the Lord came to you and said to you, and you know it's his voice, I want you to clean out your bank account and give it to this person or this ministry or whatever. Would you go? Would you do it? And you're sure it's him. Does the Lord, are you willing to do whatever he tells you to do? I'm not saying you're doubting. I'm not saying a pastor on TV convinced you to clean out your bank account. I'm saying you're sure the Lord is leading you in one direction. Are you willing to give up everything for it or do you go now lord wouldn't do that so i'm going to open us in prayer take a couple minutes wherever you're at if you need to he knows your heart you know your heart just pray with him so father we just come before you lord as we take these next couple of minutes quietly in prayer it's just you and us lord maybe consider the scriptures that you taught tonight that you put before us you knew we'd all be here you knew what we needed to hear lord if we need confirmation from your voice on something would you give it to us if perhaps we've been believing you've said something and you haven't would you confirm that to us lord if we've not really been following you may you bring us to the place where we want what you have we desire your righteousness and we're willing to give up anything or go through anything to get it. Lord, may our walk with you not be contingent upon what we want or don't want. May you be the leader and us be the followers. Lord, have your way in our hearts. You speak to us, Lord. So go before the Lord quietly. No one's going to pray out loud. It's just going to be you and him just for two or three minutes and see what he might have to share with you tonight.